why Christianity doesn't work. And I'll explain that to you if you'll turn with me in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. That's the text that I want to start with today on the subject of why Christianity doesn't work. At verse 11, we are taught, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, you can read the context of the fourth chapter, talking about ancient Israel and the many, many people, the majority of adults who never entered the land that God promised to their predecessors, their forefathers. They never got in. They escaped slavery in Egypt, but never made it to the land promised to them for centuries because of their unbelief. They simply did not believe what God had said. The exception was two adults, Joshua and Caleb, and so we're taught to labor to enter into that rest so that we don't fall after the same type of unbelief. For us, obviously, it is an entrance into what we know in the Bible biblically as heaven. And to be clear, Jesus teaches, taught, declared that there's only one door that people go through into this place that we know as heaven which we also equate with eternal life. And Jesus said, I am the way. That word means path. I'm the only path. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when he said earlier in the Gospel of John, I am the door, he didn't mean a door. He said, I am the door. And there's only one. But what I want to share with you in this message, for those of you viewing it weeks, maybe months, or even years later, is being given on Labor Day weekend here in America. Why Christianity doesn't work. Now, I'm certain that the majority of you here today have seen Walt Disney's animation of a story written in 1883 called Pinocchio. And just to be clear so that you know, Walt Disney did not write that story, he just animated it. It was written by an Italian author by the name of Carlos Colidi. And at first it was just a series of little stories, shorter stories, in a magazine, but it became so popular that eventually it was collated into one volume, The Adventures of Pinocchio. And there's several things that are actually fascinating about the story of Pinocchio, again, animated by Disney, which I know that when my children were growing up, that was one of the things that we'd show them. But I don't recall ever, even in my own home, that we ever went at the end of the story to talk about, now, what is the lesson to be learned? It was just simply a cartoon. But that's not what the author intended initially. It had a lesson, a moral lesson. What's also fascinating about the story of Pinocchio, written again in the 19th century, well over 100 years ago, was that one expert claims that the story of Pinocchio has been more widely distributed than any other book in Italy, the exception being the Bible. 
And then there's claims of who knows how many people have read this story worldwide, 30, 80 million, nobody really knows the exact figure, but it's a widespread story that has a didactic lesson to it that I'm guessing the average individual in America, at least, doesn't pick up on. It's just simply a cartoon, but that was not the intent, and it's not really what Pinocchio was all about. You've seen it. I've seen it many times because with our children growing up, you know, we would just put in the same tapes that were safe to watch. And if you recall, from the moment that the woodcarver, Papa Geppetto, begins to fashion out of a piece of wood a puppet, the very first thing the puppet does, Pinocchio, is kick Geppetto. Let's kick him. And so as the story begins, he's a finished work with face like a human being and arms and legs and all that, of course, still on strings because he's a marionette. But as soon as Geppetto teaches Pinocchio how to walk and can cut the strings, he's off into the world. So the parable of Pinocchio is the human condition. Now, you may want to think that you're an exception to what I'm about to say, but you're not. We all have begun kicking against God. And to this day, people who profess to be Christians kick against God. Not all, but far too many. One of the parts of the animated version of Pinocchio that always fascinated me is when Pinocchio, who's done a lot of mischievous things, again, for those of you who've seen it, is always getting himself into some kind of jam, and then there's Jiminy the Cricket, who's kind of his conscience. Eventually, Pinocchio meets up with this character known as Lampwick. He's a bad actor. <laughs> he's literally an actor, but he's a very bad influence who convinces Pinocchio that he should go with him, Lampwick, to this place called Pleasure Island. And while he's there, Pinocchio, he learns how to smoke and to drink and to get into fights and brawls and play pool, which today is very, very modest and very moderate compared to what we're dealing with now. But in 1883, these were bigger deals than we have today. He learns how to do bad. And he learns how to enjoy doing bad. And it's Jiminy who comes along and discovers the real purpose of Pleasure Island. He finds out that those that are gone or have gone to Pleasure Island are turned into donkeys that are then sold to salt mines to do all this labor. They're changed from their original form. Remember Pinocchio at the time, he's a puppet. And he rescues Pinocchio, basically. He rescues Pinocchio from that fate, even though at the moment he's already starting to turn Pinocchio into a donkey, a gray donkey. Well, we could talk more about this fascinating adventure, but what I want to draw from it is the analogy for you and I. In the end, Pinocchio redeems himself, which is where our analogy completely breaks down. But there's so much that we can really learn from a cartoon. If perhaps, maybe you'll watch it in the future with your grandchildren or maybe your young children again, and you can take time to point out the lesson that the original story was designed for. It's an extended metaphor. It's like a parable. Jesus taught. 
There's a character we meet in the Bible, and we certainly have met him in life, who's constantly trying to seduce us to go to Pleasure Island with a lie that it's just all about you having lots of fun and being able to do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want, and at the end, it's all good. Or, in biblical parlance, in the end, you still make heaven. Because basically, everybody goes to heaven. Not what Jesus taught. But that's how people like to believe, because Lampwick of the real world is called Satan. And he tells you and he tells me, you can go to Pleasure Island, you can indulge your flesh, you can do what you want, say what you want, and all these things. And at the end, it's all good, but it's a lie. Because at the end of Pleasure Island is a place called hell that Jesus spoke about, the apostles spoke about it, of course, the prophets mentioned it too. And I want to bring to your attention to remind you of this and always remind you this Roman cross makes no sense whatsoever when we talk about Jesus dying on it if that place called hell does not exist. Amen. His death, all this singing about blood and a communion service and all this, it makes no sense whatsoever if that place called hell does not exist nor does his death and burial and resurrection make a whole lot of difference if there's many doors that lead to heaven. But we are assured in the scriptures there's just one door, only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Now, I want you just to take a moment to just think about this question I'm about to ask you. Has Lampwick been in your ear lately to get you to go to Pleasure Island? Do as you please. It's all about grace. We have some respected teachers who teach that error. No, not grace is not the error. But that it don't matter what you do. Once you're saved, you're always saved. You can go to Pleasure Island. Of course, it may not be good for you temporarily, but in the end, it all works out. That's not what this book teaches. I am the way, narrow path, and all of this. Has Lampwick been in your ear telling you in any way that he is trying to seduce you? You can go to Pleasure Island, and it's all good. Enjoy yourself. Be like your friends. Be like your neighbors. Look at them. They're having fun. Look at you. Prayer and Bible and discipline and all of this here. Emphasis on holiness and not being able to do what others do. Your friends and family. Be like them because you can do it and still make the kingdom. But that's precisely the point of Pinocchio. He was being seduced, by, first of all, by his own sin. His own mischievous ways. But then Lampwick came and just... Put it on a fast track and grease the skids. Let's go to Pleasure Island, which is, you know, he does. But his conscience in the form of Jiminy Cricket finds out that that is not the purpose of Pleasure Island. The purpose of Pleasure Island is to turn you into a slave and sell you off. Has Lampwick been visiting you lately saying you can do what you want? You could have a casual relationship with God. Don't take it too seriously. Look at your friends. Now I want to talk about Christian friends. And I want to begin to talk to you about why Christianity doesn't work. Now look at some of your friends in the local church where you go. 
but they're not as serious as you are. And they don't take things as serious as you do. And they don't read as much as you read. And they don't put an emphasis on not indulging in other things, sinful things, things that you know are wrong. And they're all going to heaven. But that is a conjecture. We only have one rule, and the rule is what's written in this book about how to eventually see God and not have our end be like so many others. My friends, the title of this message, Why Christianity Doesn't Work, is a double entendre. Ordinarily, a double entendre has some type of risque or um, dirty meaning. Mine doesn't. There's two lessons here with the same title. Why Christianity Doesn't Work. And I'd like to just read a short excerpt from Watchman Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life. The point of the book, what he explains in its pages, is how a normal Christian... Now, I'm going to separate normal from average. I'll explain that in a minute. This is normal Christianity. But let me read it. Nee wrote... We do well at the outset to ponder this question, what is the normal Christian life? What does it look like to be a normal Christian? The object of these studies is to show that it is something very different from the life of the average Christian. Just take a moment to think about what he's saying here. The purpose of what I'm writing, he says, is to show that there's a big difference between what is normal in a Christian's life from what is the average Christian life. Indeed, a consideration of the written word of God, of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, should lead us to ask whether such a life has ever, in fact, been lived upon the earth, save only by the Son of God himself. But in that last saving clause lies immediately the answer to our question. The Apostle Paul gives us his own definition of the Christian life in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I but Christ that lives. Here, listen, here he is not stating something special or peculiar, a high level of Christianity. He is, we believe, presenting God's normal for a Christian, which can be summarized in these words, I live no longer, but Christ lives his life in me. It's a good book. You should read it. The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. And so Nee entertains the thought, has there ever really been a life lived other than what Jesus lived by anybody who professes to be a follower or what we simply know as a Christian? Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Everybody in America is a Christian. Almost, well, I say almost everybody in Europe. Other places, no, because they have their own religious population is different. But in Western society, you can meet tens and tens of millions of people that if you ask them, what's your religion? They'll say, well, I'm a Christian. But here is the question. Are you a normal Christian or are you an average Christian? Let me share with you an illustration that I think will point out what I'm trying to say. Everyone here has had a cold or what we call a common cold. And if there's some exceptions, they're very, very slim. So it's safe to say that Everybody has had at one point in their life, and usually more than once, a common cold. That's average, but it's not normal. 
It's not normal for the body to be sick. It's out of the norm. It's not the way God created the body. He created the body to be well, to enjoy health. So when we have a common cold, and think of the word common, we don't think much of it. And I'm not suggesting that we should. I'm just simply saying that it's common. You've had it, I've had it more than once, twice, three times, maybe four in the winter time, and on and on. It's just an average experience that we all have. But this should not be so when it comes to Christianity. To let Christianity be defined by someone up at the top of a denomination somewhere who says this is Christianity. And for others, wherever they may be who identify with Christ and therefore call themselves a Christian, to compare themselves with everybody else and say, well, I'm just average. Sure, I pray. And sure, I read the Bible. By the way, most don't read the Bible on a daily basis. Most don't pray. Most don't attend church services. But that's average. So why should it bother you if this person over here does the exact same things? Just average. I actually went to a pastor, a friend of mine, years ago. I, I used to like to do this, not because I wanted acknowledgement or validation or credit, to encourage the other person. And I still do it from time to time. I may just send a note to somebody that I was praying for them. Sometimes it's a stranger. And I went up to this pastor, a friend of mine, and I just said to him, I said, I just want to let you know that I pray for you on a daily basis, marriage and family, all that. And he came back with this response. He chuckled, and he says, well, I don't pray for you. Which I think was intended as a tongue-in-cheek statement, but I believed it was the truth. Now, this was not to say, this makes me a better person, Christian, dedicated. The point and I've done this on other occasions, go to someone who doesn't know me, who I do pray for, and just to let them know I'm praying for you, but that's to encourage them, not to acknowledge me. And even in jest, which I'm not entirely sure it was all in jest, I think he was telling the truth. For a pastor, who at that time, well he still is <clears throat> full-time, I wasn't. I was in the ministry, but I was still working a secular job. To say, well I don't pray for you, listen to me, is average. And so let's make a story here and pretend that he's with other pastors and do you pray and well you know I've been around a lot of people but I've been around a lot of pastors who simply don't pray and I'm not in a position to say what's the number statistically of pastors who actually have a prayer life not just some time once a week they meet with the whatever they actually have a prayer life I don't know but I know there's Far too many that do not, that occupy a pulpit that looks like this one, but have no prayer life and are not very proficient in the Bible, which is frightening. And so if I was with a group of pastors like that, this may encourage me in my slothfulness of prayer or lack of prayer, of lack of study, to say, well, I'm just average pastor. They don't pray much. I don't pray much. And to feel good about this miscreant behavior on the part of someone as a pastor who is not normal. In the pastorate, it is normal to have a prayer life. Pastors are supposed to be teachers. Not everything else that you've read about and some of you think you know all about church growth. You know very little. Usually nothing. Unless you're quoting from the book of Acts or from the Bible itself. 
It's normal for a pastor to be a student of the Bible, to maintain his time for reading the Bible and books and prayer and so on. That's normal, but that is not average. Now, for you, you should not let yourself be encouraged by others who say, well, you know, I don't pray as much as I ought to and read or witness, share Christ with others, which again is average. You are well aware of all the problems we have in our country. Now you're all informed. What is the answer? Well, what is the problems? How did we get here? For those of you who've been with me for some time, and I've taken time on Wednesday nights to go through the history of our country, the history of Europe, when the church was strong in the word and the people preaching it, whoever they were, actually lived it. There was always a buffer in society. In other words, society had a conscience. But now that the pulpit is basically leading people to Pleasure Island, even by the invitation to come in the front door. You can sit there with your latte and your uh, whatever people wear to church nowadays and be given a motivational speech. Friends, you're going to make it. Well, yes, you are. But what else does the Bible say? The Apostle Paul said, I did not cease to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So to come week after week with your latte and uh, to have one set up downstairs. Now we have coffee after the service. I'm talking about coming in and being made to feel comfortable when it is clear that many people are living an average Christian life, which is not a normal Christian life, and need to be exhorted to do and to be what this book says you are to do and to be and none other. There is none other. It doesn't matter how popular the preacher is, how good looking he is or she is, how many people attend, I saw online the other night, a week or so back, one of the largest, most notable churches in the world, it's here in America, and it's one of the straight churches where the preaching is biblical and so on. And they have a worldwide prayer meeting. I don't know how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people attend that church. I don't know what the number is today, but it's thousands upon thousands that go to hear the word of God, and they really do hear the word of God. And in their worldwide online prayer meeting, because I just happened to see when I was going past the channel, there was 613 people watching or praying. 613 out of what? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people? Christianity, my friend, doesn't work. And we must come to the conclusion that we do not want to be average or just like everybody else. Whatever they do, they do. We want to have the normal Christian life which, once again, can be found in this book. Now, if this is not what you want, then you may lead an average Christian life. You may do whatever you... You can go to Pleasure Island and say it's going to be all right, but you be sure that this book says, no, it is not going to be all right. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, not the pastor, not the church, not the call for volunteers to work here, and we need this, and we need that, and oh, well, you know... That's average. Let me tell you what's average, but not normal in a local church. It's average. I have a handful of people you can count on, the pastor can count on, or the church can count on, that do 90% of the work, hands-on work, while the rest just seem to reap the benefits. But my friend, you may not be reaping the benefits you think. 
You don't come to hear a sermon because it's something that stimulates you or excites you. You come to be instructed how to live a normal Christian life. And Christianity doesn't work. I'll explain it. Two sides of a coin. I just wanted to be very clear that what is average in the church, and this would go around the world because people are people, is not normal. Further, if you step out anywhere at any time and you decide to go all the way with Christ as he demands, and I've shared this with you before, I know it by principle and I know it by experience. The greatest opposition that you're going to get is from the average Christian. It may come from your own family. But just remember, Pleasure Island does not lead to heaven. Jesus does. And always cling to him because Christianity, in its present form, doesn't work. So today, well, tomorrow, is Labor Day. And since the 1800s, a movement began to petition, I was going to say demand, from places of employment, better working conditions, better pay, better benefits, and so the American Labor Union movement was birthed in the late 1800s. And I believe that it was good. But as time has gone on, it has reversed itself. In the book, which is a good read, it was written 32 years ago by Chuck Colson and one other author. The title of the book is Why America Doesn't Work, meaning go to work. And you know the answers to all this, the present state of socialistic thinking and communistic thinking, which is now in our country. And you know all this. And the work ethic, which interestingly in America used to be called the Protestant work ethic because it came from the book. This book says if you don't work, you don't eat. We say, oh, the poor guy. He's fallen on hard times for the last 40 years. I hear people say they can't find a job, and yet I'm going down streets where every, every place I go past has a sign. They're looking for workers. It doesn't matter if they're mechanics, nurses, warehouses. But hey, why go work for a few hundred dollars when you can get a few hundred more dollars for free? Why America Doesn't Work. It's a good book. But I'm submitting to you that Christianity itself doesn't work because we are once again comparing ourselves to each other. Preachers do this all the time. They compare themselves to other preachers. A pastor, a man who was a friend of mine for years, went to a seminar about how to grow the church. Of course, everybody on the platform has massively big churches, 10, 20, 30,000 people. And this is what happened when he was there. So he goes, you have the main arena where you have thousands of pastors going to learn the secrets to church growth. So I want to tell you again, they're not secrets. They're right here. But the sponsors, who are con artists, make it seem like we're going to tell you some things nobody knows how we got a church to be so big. Now here's the kicker. But if you want the real secret, there was a certain fee, an exorbitant fee, to go into the upper room. It was literally an upper room where they would tell you the real secrets that the people downstairs aren't going to get. And my friend was a good man. He felt very bad that he couldn't get into the inner sanctum of the secret. And I said to him, you ought to be glad. You didn't pay the extortion from a con artist about the secret of church growth. This is the secret of church growth here. And who adds to the church? It's not the bishop. It's not the preacher. It's not the deacon board. It's not the executive board. And the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. 
So we have Labor Day tomorrow, and there'll be barbecues and picnics, and, and rightly so, to celebrate the American labor movement and how it has caused America to be great. But even though I was in a union years ago when I worked for the Postal Service, I found that on many occasions, or some occasions at least, the union would take things too far. You couldn't get your work done. So we have one extreme to the other. But I'm not here to talk to you about American labor. I'm talking to you today about why Christianity doesn't work. I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I went to the doctors not that long ago, and I was a new patient. And so they weighed me, and then they took my height. Five feet, nine inches tall. I said, I'm not five feet, nine inches tall. I've been six feet tall since the eighth grade. Well, that's what the, I use the word metric. That's what the metric says. Do you want to try it again? I said, yeah, let's try it again. It was, I, I was five foot nine. I said, I'm not five foot nine. Do we have to draw a line on the wall? I said, this is not calibrated properly. I use that example to say, how do you know that you're growing in Christ and that you got the real thing? And this is how you know. Always go back to these verses and then you'll know if you're actually living a normal Christian life. Let's read it, beginning at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, you know, means self-control. Against such there is no law. Meaning there's no law on the planet Earth that says you can't be meek and gentle and good and compassionate and loving. And they that are Christ, this is the normal Christian life, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the measuring stick. I am not five feet, nine inches tall. I'm 72 inches, and I've been that way for a long, long time. So I don't leave the office saying, well, it says five foot nine. I must be five foot nine. The measuring stick is wrong. So here's the question for you. What are you using as a measuring stick that you are living a normal Christian life? Think about it. What you were taught as a child, some of it, your favorite preacher, a book that you read. Who's influencing your mind beyond this book that God wrote so that you would know that your life in Jesus is normal, not necessarily average? And again, let me repeat myself. If you're comparing yourself to other Christians, you're making a huge mistake. After I was weighed and my height was taken, I reported it to the um, physician's assistant. I said, oh, by the way, just want to let you know, I'm not five foot nine. I don't care what you put down. I mean, it doesn't make a difference to me. But she was adamant. No, it makes a difference. Of course, you know how much medication you get and so forth. There's depending on your height and your weight, your BMI, body mass index, depending on your height, as well as your weight and the formula they use to determine that. It's important that you only compare yourself to this word because when you read the Bible or a message like this, there's no one around you that can aid in helping you. We have the lamp, this is the book, and then we have the oil, which is the Holy Spirit. And as we see in the parable of the ten virgins, 
Their oil ran low. They still had the knowledge that the master was coming, as you do. But the oil was low, and they were no longer living a normal Christian life. They were living an average one, sleeping. How, tell me, how can anyone who truly knows Christ be sleeping in this hour of history? Unconcerned about church attendance, unconcerned about whether their children even pray over their meals, or taught the word of God at home at what used to be called the family altar. I don't understand. My friends here in this country alone, not to mention the entire planet, we are in a very precarious situation. So you want to make sure that the measuring stick you're using is not poorly constructed or broke. For the fruit of the spirit is love. You find yourself growing in more love. And don't go by people you already love. Go by people, perhaps, that you don't love. Having more joy, you say, how can you have more joy in this world? That's the whole point. We are in this world. We are no longer of it. Doesn't mean we don't do anything. Doesn't mean we adopt an attitude of fatalism and determinism. Oh, well, there's nothing that we can do. We're told to work. But do you find yourself growing with more love, finding more joy? How about peace? I heard a man say, and it's a good Christian man, I mean, he's a Christian man, but I think he's average. Reading a verse similar to this one about peace, and made a statement at a study that he was conducting, that you know, if only we could get this. And I said, if only we can get it. That's the whole point. The whole point is to bear the fruit of God's spirit, his oil, that we get in combination with this word, by obedience to what he said, to live a normal Christian life. Peace. How are you faring in that department? Becoming more patient, finding more goodness, and so on. More self-control, more control over this mouth, more control over the thoughts that go through your brain. There's an old Chinese proverb. It says this, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from making nests in your hair. All these things is the measuring stick. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh. Quickly, I once refused to read a book when I was in community college because it was once a banned book. The uh, teacher who had us read it, I don't know what his motive was, but we were to read this book that had once been banned in America and he wanted us to read it. I just newly received Christ, so I refused. I was on the president's list of the college at the time. And I simply solicited, you know, this is a university. This is like a lot of open thinking. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, I see. That's a good idea. This is what I proposed to my English teacher. I proposed, give me an alternate assignment. I said, I don't care what it is because I'm a Christian. I'm born again. And I don't want to read this book. I object to it. His response to me was, son, you don't know, you know, basically as much as I do. My response is, hey, I'm not your son. And number two, I'm old enough to know what I want to read and what I don't. I was just born again. I didn't want to go back to that smut, that life. I refused to read it. What was on the line was my entire position in the radiology program. You fail one course in radiology, you're out of the whole program. But principle was more important to me than anything else. Before you know it, I'm at the head of the English department in her office. And I proposed it again. Just, I don't care what book you give me to read. I'll read it, do the report. I just don't want to read this book. Her response, she said, well, I'm a Christian too, and I've read it. 
I said, ma'am, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I'm not going to read that book. And she was kind enough to give me an alternate assignment for which I had to go to night school after working a full day, eight to four, in hospitals, and then go to night school for a couple hours every night for six, eight weeks in the summertime. Was it worth it? You better believe it was worth it to this day. When you stand, for, like Mark Twain said, it is never the wrong time to do the right thing. And I don't regret that stand that I made. And I'm glad that I did it. My desire, and I hope it's yours, is to lead a normal Christian life. Now, here's the flip side of the double meaning of my title. Why Christianity doesn't work. Simply put, it doesn't work because we're not comparing ourselves to the book. We're comparing ourselves to others. So it doesn't work. Simply, so you're not getting peace and you're not joyful and so on. But God designed his plan of salvation to work. So how does Christianity work? In Romans chapter 8, it says this at verses 13 and 14. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. I'm somewhat fascinated when I look up Christian leaders who are on their fourth and fifth marriages. And I'm just going to leave his name off. But I was astonished to see one of the most prominent teachers of the Bible in America. And has been for many, many decades. His books have sold millions and millions of books. How many wives he's had. And this is kind of comical. Whenever there's a reprint of the book, you know, there's a picture of him and his wife. Whenever there's a reprint, it's a new wife. Four times. He's almost 90 years old now. And then he's an expert, a very smart man, on all the intricacies of the Bible. Don't you be fooled. A tree is known by its fruit, not by its intellect. Not because you go through the Latin names of the tree and of the fruit and read books on botany and so on. Horticulture. A tree is known by its fruit. So look at verse 13 and 14, Romans chapter 8. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye, now listen, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They are the normal Christian. Led. What does it mean to be led? Well, it means just what it implies. Of an animal, it means to take that animal and lead it. Bring it to a place of destination that you have in mind. Not that the animal has in mind. How many of you have ever seen someone walking their dog? And the dog is out five, ten feet, dragging the owner along. You're not walking the dog. The dog's walking you. Well, that's a pretty good analogy to a life in the flesh, which is average in the church world today. Everybody's doing it. Well, no, everybody is not. Or to teach your dog to heal and to walk beside you and not tug on the leash and so on. That means you are leading your animal and not animal leading you. Who's really leading the church? Well, if you look at it with your eyes and your ears, man is. But no, not really. Jesus' church is being led by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's by God himself. And that we don't see as much because it's spread out. In other words, you can't go to one building and find all the people who are actually born again. They're spread out all over the place. And in between, well, let me say it to you in Jesus' words, we have wheat and we have tares. We have a weed, noxious, toxic weed, that looks like wheat, but it's not. And that's average. 
But normal is found by those who are being led by the Spirit of God. It's unfortunate, and it's mainly, I think, in Pentecostal charismatic churches that we use this so glibly. The Lord led me to do this. The Lord led me to do that. The Lord said this. The Lord said that. And what you must know, and you can read it any place, really. God doesn't speak that often. Not in the New Testament, not in the Old. I'm not saying he doesn't speak. I'm just saying he doesn't speak as often as some people claim he does. And when he does, he never contradicts this book. Ever. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit. We need the lamp of the Bible, the oil of the Holy Spirit, to know which direction we should go and follow the blueprint that God has given to us and then let the rest go into God's hands. I've shared this with you before. I want to remind you of it. And if you can give me an example with a book, a chapter, and a verse, I'd gladly reward you a $100 bill to find one person Jesus ever followed up on who turned away from him. If you could find one that comes from this book, I read this just the other day. And I think, again, it's well-intentioned. God never gives up on you. Well, I think I understand what the man was trying to put across, encouragement and so on. But the statement in and by itself is not true. Romans chapter 1 says God gave them over. Jeremiah was told, don't pray to me about this again. I will not hear their prayers. And you see, we need this to balance things. Of course, God's going to stay with us. I will be with you always. See, this is the whole counsel. And so, can you say today, and again, I'll give you the measuring stick of how to know, is God really leading you? How routine is it for me to have somebody be led to come to this church? Tell me wonderful things after a message. Like, that's the greatest message I've ever heard. I think you're the greatest preacher I've ever heard. Which, I don't believe that, but... And then never come back. Never come back. God sent me here. And then you hear about what God is telling him that he neglected to tell me. God told this, that, and the other thing. And I have little tests that I don't talk about. And I put them through. Sure enough, many of them never passed the test. You think they're going to occupy my time with all this Danielle? all going around and around. It's a trick by Lampwick to occupy me and get me to have a fruitless ministry. Now, my question is, are you being led by the Holy Spirit? How do you know? Start with the basics. Read in Galatians chapter 5. Is your life bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And if it's not, begin to look at yourself and at least begin to entertain that though your life may be that of an average Christian, it is not that of a normal Christian by Jesus' definition. By the definition of the Holy Spirit. My friend, that's what you want. You don't want to be a Pinocchio who is being seduced to go to Pleasure Island because of the clever words and manipulative phrases of men who are conning others or themselves are denied the truth. That you can go to Pleasure Island, you can have your cake and eat it too, which I've never understood why you would want to have cake and not eat it, but that's how the saying goes. You can go to Pleasure Island and you can do what you want, but as you attend a meeting or say this prayer, or you get baptized in a tank, a river, an ocean, you're good. But the book does not say that. We talk about continuance in following the Lord and discipleship. And we must choose whether we believe the Lord through the book or we don't. Whether we put confidence in the flesh, meaning men, or we put confidence in the author of the book, meaning God. To live a normal Christian life. 
to hate even the garments spotted by the flesh. I occasionally have the misfortune of getting entirely dressed to find out I have a spot on the shirt. Too late. I can't tell you in the middle of a message, I'll be right back, I gotta change my shirt. And I hate it. To notice on the sleeve, now this is a clean shirt, but to notice on the sleeve there's a spot. I didn't see it. And we're taught in the scriptures to hate the garment, the spirit man, that's even tainted by the world and the impurities and so on. We must decide. All of us must decide. I've made up my mind. We have to decide what we really, really want. To be led by the Holy Spirit means to live a normal Christian life. Reading the book God wrote. There's a lot of good books out there, but none of them supplant this one. This is the book. Read it. I'm getting closer to 50 years in this book. I'm edging up on 50 years. And I'm still challenged by what it says. Still convicted. And I take that as a good sign that God is leading me through the word and prayer. Quo vadis domine. Where are you going, Lord? Doesn't matter where I want to go. Where are you going, Lord? Quo vadis Domine, where are you going? Ask yourself this question today. Do I want to be the average Christian or do I want to be a normal Christian? Normal, of course, being defined by God. And every one of us has got to make up their own minds. I'll finish with this as far as one aspect that we get from truly being led of the Lord. I mean, being a normal Christian. And it's from the life of Thomas Jonathan Jackson, the famed general on the Confederate side or in the Confederate army, who at the first battle of Manassas, as the Confederate army went up against the Union army, they were routed. And they began to retreat. General Thomas Jonathan Jackson just sat on his horse, bullets all over the place, Confederate army in retreat, and they just sat there. And it was one of his generals by the last name of B, B-E-E, that said, look at General Jackson standing there like a stone wall. That act of courage, which, by the way, Thomas Jonathan Jackson or Stonewall Jackson stated that he says, I am as comfortable in battle as I am in my own bed because of my religion. And he was a Christian. Listen, I'm as comfortable in battle as I am in my own bed because that's a fruit of the Spirit. For God hath not given unto us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that's just one of the benefits that we're supposed to remember. But it's only given to the normal Christian. And you decide which you are to be. Normal or average. As for me, I literally covet the blessings of God. I still am in a position where I see there's still more to go for me. But I've made up my mind that I'm going. How about you? Today, maybe your judgment is not 100% accurate, but register one. Are you the average Christian or are you a normal Christian? And answer for yourself. Think just for a moment whether you are living like every other Christian lives, apart from the book or you are living the way Jesus said you are to live. So Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name. We are doing again, as we are taught to do during the communion supper, to examine ourselves 
And in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, we're told to examine ourselves to see if we're even in the faith. Help us, God, to rise up to the challenge of being a normal Christian by your definition and not to compare ourselves amongst ourselves whereby we prove we are not wise. Help us, God, always compare ourselves to the book. By your grace, by your spirit, and by your mercy, help us always to be growing in that fruit. Help us to obtain your blessings in this hour of history as we see your return is so imminent, so close. Help us, God, to be like the five wise virgins that kept their lamps trimmed and plenty of oil so that they could see the bridegroom when he came. And for this today, God, will give you all the praise. We'll give you all the glory and we'll give you all the honor. For your name is great and it's greatly to be praised. So, Father, we thank you today for all these things. I ask you to bless the fellowship we're about to have. Not only the food, but the conversations and all the things that we do. Cause your people to enter into that rest that you have prepared for the people of God. And we give you all the praise and thanksgiving. Remind us this week that we are to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen today? Amen.